Good morning, ECC. It is so wonderful to see all of you again. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We'll be picking up where Pastor Aubrey left off last week in Postcards from Paul. As you're turning there, I just want to say thank you uh, to particularly the elders and the Associate Pastor Selection Committee who have served the church so well uh, through this difficult and transitional season. I want to say thank you to so many of you who have cared for us and loved us, who have been praying for us and reached out. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I probably should have started there. My name is uh, J.P. Stokes. Uh, I'm here with my family. For the last nine years, uh, we have been living in India and serving there. And if the Lord wills, I look forward to getting to know all of you better and serving you in the years to come. Let's look together at God's Word in Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. So Titus chapter 2, I'll read for us verses 1 to 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to, be to, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for your care for us, that you have given us this word to instruct us in how we ought to live our lives, how we ought to order ourselves as the church, the things which we ought to believe, and the lives which we ought to live. Father, help me this morning as I speak to do it with love, to do it with clarity, to serve your people. Lord, help all of us as we hear your word this morning to be shaped by it. Help us to apply these truths in our lives as we go out this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Something that is astonishing to me as I come to the UAE, here in Abu Dhabi and in Dubai, elsewhere, is seeing the buildings, incredible buildings everywhere you look, high, modern structures, if you think about the history of this country, it was not that long ago, relatively speaking, that none of this was here. And so you see these massive, incredible, impressive buildings rising up everywhere. 
At, at one point, uh, I was told that the UAE had more cranes per capita than any other country on earth. There's always construction happening, always things being built, and I love to see the progress over years as you see things in progress first. One of the most impressive things is as they just start, as they dig out and then lay the foundation for what will be a massive superstructure. Uh, some of these towers around us have foundations going 30 or 40 meters deep. The Burj Khalifa has a foundation going more than 50 meters deep, over 110,000 tons of concrete form the foundation of the Burj Khalifa. When we, when we look at these towers, we see what's built up, but you know there has to be something strong underneath, holding it, supporting it. And we also know that nobody would be foolish enough to go out into the desert and to start to build a tower just on top of the dunes. Because as soon as the wind blows or the dunes shift, the whole thing would be destroyed. Likewise, though, if we see, when we, when we stayed here previously in 2021, we lived on uh, Al-Rim, and just across the water from us, somewhere near the Hydra complex, I don't know if it's properly part of that, there's a series of buildings that were begun, and then project ran out of money and are just laying dormant, half completed. And it's evident there's, there's something wrong here. This has not gone as it should have gone. This is, this is not fitting, not right. For us... As we look at Titus chapter 2 this morning, we're going to look at our own lives and we're going to see the foundation and the structure which is built on top of it. The foundation for us is gospel doctrine. And then the building which goes on top of it is godly living. Gospel doctrine and godly living. Just as you won't see anybody try to build a tower on the dunes, so godly living or a form of godliness without sound gospel doctrine supporting it is of no lasting value. But similarly, if you see someone with what seems to be sound doctrine that isn't matched by godly living, it's apparent to all, this is not fitting. This is not how things ought to be. But how our lives ought to be is like a strong tower with a deep, sound foundation holding up a building for all to see. So as we look at Titus chapter 2, we're going to see two main points. Verses 1 to 10, live according to the gospel. Live a life according to the gospel. And then verses 11 to 15, understand what is the gospel. So live a life according to the gospel and understand what is the gospel. Now this is an inversion of a common pattern which we see in the New Testament, which is often in Paul's letters he'll write first on doctrine. What is the gospel? What has been done for you? And then, as an outworking of that, how ought you to live? Here in Titus chapter 2, we see first, how ought we to live? And then we see the foundation beneath it. What is the sound, sure, strong foundation that holds up a superstructure like this? So first, verses 1 to 10, live according to the gospel. And Paul here is going to speak to six groups. He speaks first to Titus, to whom he's writing this letter. I think we can rightly apply this to elders and pastors in the church now. Then he speaks to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and bondservants. 
But we see these instructions to six groups of people really in three major groupings. And each one, even as we're awaiting the second point, which is this sound and sure foundation of gospel doctrine, we see him grouping around three purpose clauses. He says, so that, so that, so that. Why are you living this way? I'll tell you why. Now, I'm going to give you the foundation later. I'm going to give you the reason later, but I want to tell you throughout, why ought you to live lives like this? What's the purpose for it? And then, what's the foundation upon which it's built? So we're going to be looking at these in primarily verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 8, and verses 9 and 10. And these are grouped around these purpose statements which he's giving. Live this way, so that. Live this way, so that. Live this way, so that. Live according to the gospel. This is the superstructure which the whole world sees. A godly life is like Burj Al Arab, which you see pictures of all over the world. But gospel doctrine is the foundation which can hold up a structure like that. We need to have faith in the gospel, which is then worked out in godly living. Martin Luther, in his introduction to the book of Romans, wrote this. So the book of Romans, which is rich in doctrine, talking about faith, Martin Luther, in his introduction, says this, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. As we look at Scripture, biblical faith is like this. It's living, busy, active, mighty. It's not asking, should I do something good? Should I be acting in these ways? But before you even ask the question, it's already done it. It's constantly doing it. This is what our faith is like. So let's look at verses 1 to 10. Live according to the gospel. First, Paul speaks to Titus, and he says, teach. As for you, as for you, Titus, you're not like these false teachers, which we saw at the end of chapter 1, who are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with, what fits with sound doctrine. He's not just saying teach sound doctrine. That's a given. We've actually seen earlier in chapter 1, this is the work of elders in the church, to teach sound doctrine. And he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What's fitting with sound doctrine? What are the things which naturally fit with sound doctrine? That's what you ought to be teaching, Titus. Namely, so, so first, as a just call to the elders here, as a call to myself, as we love and serve and lead and teach the flock, brothers, teach sound doctrine, and then serve the flock by showing what does this look like in your lives. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And now we'll move to our first group of people. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. ECC is relatively a young congregation fitting with largely the community around us. We are grateful for saints like David Winning, who have served the body for many years. And even on the, the younger end of older, men like Roy Ashton, Scott Altmeyer, men who are, are examples to us. But even here, I think what we're talking about is men who are probably about 40 and above. So we talk about older men, 
40 and above. So if you are 40 and above, if you just raise your hand, older men, this is God's word for you. To be sober-minded. This is the first call to older men. Be sober-minded. They're, they're not given to the kind of excesses that we see Cretans were often given to as we look at chapter 1, verse 12. That they're lazy gluttons, evil beasts. They're giving themselves to these things. In the church, older men ought not to be like this, but to be sober-minded. They ought to be dignified, self-controlled. They ought to be respectable and in control of their passions, not being ruled over by their own desires, but they are self-controlled. This is a, a common theme, actually, as we're going to go through the chapter. It's not only older men, but to almost every group, he says, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Don't listen to your heart. Don't do whatever you want. You ought to be ruling over your passions and desires. Be self-controlled. And then he says that older men are to be sound. This word is like a, like a strong, deep foundation. It's not moving here and there. It's not loosey-goosey. It is sound. And he says in three things, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men, brothers, strive to be sound, to be solid in faith, what you believe, what you teach, in love, in the way that you care for those around you, and in steadfastness. The church needs men who, when trials come, when difficulties come, when challenges come, they're not bowled over by them, but they are sound in steadfastness. Whatever the case, they just get back to work. They're serving the Lord, they're loving the body, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Um, Megan and I, one of our favorite TV shows to watch is MasterChef Australia. Some of you guys may have seen this. If you haven't, you may have seen a similar program. Something that often happens in this is that there's these contestants who are amateur cooks, very talented, good, really good at what they do, and then there are these opportunities for them to challenge a professional chef. So they have 60 minutes, 90 minutes, whatever the case may be, your time starts now, go! And you see this amateur chef running here and there, getting pots and pans and ingredients, and they're red in the face, dripping sweat, trying to throw all these things together, and then you see the professional chef just walk over and grab this, grab a little of that, they walk back, and they're chopping vegetables. Then they go help the contestant. Oh, what are you making? That sounds great. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? They're helping them, then they walk over to their bench, and they finish, and then every time, the professional chef wins. <laughs> when that challenge comes, you have 60 minutes, they're not freaking out. What am I going to do? They've been here before. Just get to work. You do what you know you're supposed to do. Older men in the church, God calls you to be sound, firm, strong, steady in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Serve the church as trials come, as situations change, as challenges arise. You just get back to work. Sound, strong firm, dignified. Then he says, older women, likewise. So Paul's instructing Titus, this is not a church of men, you're giving equal attention. Likewise, you're ministering to older women. I'm not going to set an age limit for this one, by the way. <laughs> 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So older women in the church, you can think about this, ladies. If you're questioning, I'm probably not part of that group. Think about when you were 20 years old, 19 years old, and you looked at a woman in your situation in life, did she seem like an older woman? If the answer is yes, this is for you. <laughs> older women, likewise, he's giving them the same attention, the same worth, and he's telling them to be reverent. He doesn't use the term here, self-controlled, but they are to be reverent in their behavior, so the way that they act, the way that they speak, they're not slanderers. They're not going here and there gossiping, oh, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? Or doing the Christian version, oh, you know, we need to pray for those guys. Don't tell anybody, we really need to pray for this. It's gossip kind of dressed up as prayer. Older women, though, ought not to be that way. They're self-controlled in their behavior, in their speech. They're not slanderers. And they're not slaves to much wine. So they're not always going over, drinking, talking about everybody else in the church. But they're self-controlled. And actually, there is invaluable work for them to be doing in the church. They ought to teach what is good. So older women are called to teach. Use the gifts that the Lord has given you. Use the experiences and the opportunities that you have to help younger sisters, older women, teach what is good. And then he turns, he says, and so train. So this isn't just a little bit of content I'm teaching you, but I'm training. I'm instructing, I'm helping, I'm walking with you. And so train the younger women. Now we're turning to the younger women to love their husbands and children to be lovers of husbands, lovers of children. I was recently in a meeting with pastors from all over India, and uh, the pastor who was leading this meeting asked us to ask everyone to stand up based on the ages at which they came to faith. And in this large room with pastors from different backgrounds all over the country, about 85% had come to faith by age 20 or before. And so the, the pastor who is leading this time says, this is the value of family ministries. This is the fruit of godly mothers. If you're a mother, if you're a younger woman, young children, this is invaluable gospel ministry. Preach the gospel to your children. Love them. Train them. Instruct them. Younger women are to be self-controlled, as are Every other group, they ought to be self-controlled, ruling over, not always looking at, oh, what did she post on Instagram? Their, her life is so great. My children are always a mess. But self-controlled, ruling over your own thoughts, your own desires, your own actions. Pure, characterized by purity. It says working at home. This working at home is not some sort of spiritual house arrest that younger women are relegated to this duty, but this working at home is a working for the home, a bringing order. You can think about, if you go into an apartment and you say, 
oh, a single guy lives here. <laughs> you, you, before we were married, my wife, I lived with three other guys. My wife came over to our apartment maybe twice, and I thought it was great. She did not share that assessment. Bringing order. And we see, actually, an example of what is a godly woman like? What is this working at home like in Proverbs 31? And we see this is not a woman who's just in a room, doing dishes, whatever, but she's going out, she's going here and there, she's investing, making a profit, she's selling and buying, she is productive, always working, and always working for the good of the home. So as we, as we see this here in uh, Titus 2, I think this Proverbs 31 is a good thing for us to think back to. This doesn't mean always only in the home, but working for the home, active in these things, serving the family, kind, she's hospitable, she's caring for others around her, and submissive to her own husband. Not called to submit to every man everywhere, this isn't a, a hierarchical society, but under God's lordship, under the headship of Christ, she's to submit to her own husband. So husbands, just want to say a word to you here, if you're thinking, I'm glad she's hearing this, submitting to her own husband. As we see Paul talk about this same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, he calls men, husbands, to love their wives, lay themselves down for her as Christ did the church. As Christ gave his own life for us, husbands, this is the way you're to be leading and loving your wife. Not some kind of dominating thing, but you're serving her, you're loving her, caring for her. Now, older men, you may be tempted to think, really, what's the value of me being sound in steadfastness? Just being steady, what's the value of that? Older women thinking, if I'm self-controlled, okay, I'm not always drinking, that's good, that's fine, but really, I mean, what's, what's the value? Younger women, mothers, questioning, I wish that I could be doing that kind of thing, this kind of ministry, but instead I'm just at home. I want to encourage you with God's word, this is frontline gospel ministry. This is not lesser gospel ministry. Look what he says at the end of verse 5, that, why are you to live in this way? That the word of God may not be reviled. Younger women, when you live this way, when you love your children, when you care for them, this is protecting the church. This is protecting the word of God from dishonor. You are on the front lines of gospel ministry, protecting your brothers and sisters, protecting God's word from dishonor. You are doing this so that the word of God may not be reviled. This is not a secondary or lesser form of Christian ministry. This is frontline gospel work. Press on in these things so that the word of God may not be reviled. Now he's going to turn to talk to younger men. He says, likewise, urge the younger men. Urge, he says. This is the first time we're seeing this word. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Full stop. Young men, you got one thing, all right? Be self-controlled. Children, 
If you're here listening, be self-controlled. So you need to be thinking about what you're saying. Think about what you say before it comes out of your mouth. Think about, young men, what are you watching? How are you spending your time? Young men are urged to be self-controlled. Young men, you know the temptations that face you. You know the trials that you have. Don't be ruled over by your passions, by your desires, by whatever comes up right now. You are called to rule over those things. Be self-controlled. And then he speaks to Titus, who's a part of this group of young men. So Titus is somewhere less than 40. We don't know quite where. So he's speaking to Titus as a young man. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. This is, I think, rightly applied to all young men, though. Children, be a model of good works. You're striving toward this so that somebody could look at you and say, wow, that's what it looks like to really love people. That's what it looks like to care for people. And in your teaching, he says, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Young men, particularly, as you speak, speak truth. If you say one thing to one group of people, you're saying the same thing to another group of people. This is integrity. It doesn't matter what the situation or what the audience, you're speaking the same truth with every group of people. You're not being swayed by the majority around you. Let your speech be filled with integrity, with dignity. Young men are often less respected because they're less respectable. Young men, let your speech be filled with integrity and with dignity, sound speech, strong, firm speech that cannot be condemned. So that, why young men, children, why are you to live and act in these ways? Why are you to be self-controlled? Why are you to use this time where you have all of these opportunities, all of this energy, why are you being self-controlled and not just going out and saying, well, I've got some time, I'm just going to do whatever I want, and then later, I'll figure it out, I'll come back. Why are you to be self-controlled? Why are you to speak this way now so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us? When the church is filled with young men who are living reckless, wild, impure lives, our opponents have ample ammunition. Well, look at them. Look at this guy. I work in an office with a, this guy who goes to church every week. I'm better than he is. Young men, when you act and speak this way, we will have opponents. It doesn't say there will be no one who opposes us. But the one who opposes us is going to be the one who's put to shame because there's nothing to say. They don't have something to point out and say, yeah, well, I mean, look at those guys. Look at those Christians. Look at people at ECC. Here's what they live like. They're going to oppose us, and they're going to be put to shame because there's nothing to say. Young men, be self-controlled. Be sound in your speech. Think about what you're saying and to whom. Bondservants. This word bondservant is not a word that we use often. Um, at this time, 
what bondservant meant is a person who would sign a contract for a period of years to be in, under the authority of someone else. That may sound familiar to most of you, and it should. I think this is rightly applied now to employees of any stripe. At this time, the normal term of service would have been seven years. For many of you here, it's two years. But the exhortation is the same. So as we read bond servants in, verses, in verse 9, this is employees, people who are under someone else's authority. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So for those of you, employees, anybody with a boss, how ought you to be living towards them? Submissive in everything, it says. Working to please them. Not argumentative, not always saying, I got a better way, oh, I don't like this, I think you should give me that. Not pilfering, not saying, well, you know, if I take an hour off here, if I do this here, I take a nap on the job, I grab this thing, you know, it's, it's all like, I really, I, I think I deserve that anyway, so I'm just going to take it. Employees, Christian employees, ought not to be this way, but ought to be characterized by purity, by faithfulness, by trustworthiness, by working to serve the one whom they've agreed to work for. There are exceptions and limitations to this. If you have an employer who asks you to lie, who asks you to steal or to cheat someone, that's the limitation of your submission to them. Your submission to God is higher than to them. But unless there is a clear point where you are being asked or told to sin, God's word to employees is to be submissive in everything, well-pleasing, working to please them, not pilfering, not arguing, but showing all good faith. Why? Why, as an employee, would you not take every little advantage that you can, every little edge, every point that you can push forward and say, I'm owed this, I'm owed this, I'm owed this. Why are you not doing that? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The purpose of this is to show the beauty of biblical gospel doctrine. When we think of adornment, sometimes we think of putting something else on. We're going to adorn this by adding this, by adding that, by adding all these other things. This is not the kind of adornment that we have in view here. This adornment is like someone who can take, imagine it, you may have seen a, a diamond that's been pulled out of the mine, or a gold nugget that's been pulled from the mine. If I see that, I'm going to think, oh, that rock's a little shiny, I guess. But a master craftsman, a jeweler, can take that diamond, can take that gold nugget and polish it, shape it, form it to show, not something that wasn't there before, but to show this is the beauty and value of this thing. As a Christian employee, you need to be first speaking gospel doctrine. You can't show the beauty of something that nobody even knows about. Your boss, your coworkers, the people around you should know 
this person loves Jesus. This person follows Jesus. You need to be speaking in a way that they know who you are and then living in a way that shows, wow, look at what that gospel is producing in this person in my office. Look at what the gospel is producing in this person that works for me. Speaking gospel truth and then living in a way that adorns that doctrine, that shows this is beautiful, this is valuable, this is the most precious thing on the whole face of the earth. This is a high charge. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, employees, in all facets of your life, live to protect the word of God from dishonor. Live in such a way so that the opponent is put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Live in such a way that you are adorning, you're showing the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior. Live according to the gospel. And then he has this glorious word at the beginning of verse 11. For. So what it looked like that we ought to be living according to the gospel. Now, understand what is the gospel. This is the foundation. This is the sure and steady, sound foundation that holds up the superstructure for the world to see. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is the sure foundation. If we want to live in these ways, we need to understand what are we building it on. We're not just doing that because it sounds nice to be like that. We're doing that because what has Jesus already done? What is the sure foundation upon which we're building? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, other foundation can no man lay than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. Christ is the foundation upon which we build our lives. The grace of God, he says, so when we, when we think about what is the gospel, we need to understand what is the gospel, we need to have our eyes in two directions. One, the already accomplished work of Jesus, and two, our certain future. So verses 11 and 12, this already accomplished work, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. It's already done. I believe this is talking about Jesus' earthly ministry, his incarnation, becoming flesh like us, living a perfect and sinless life, obeying to the fullest extent the law, dying, taking the punishment that our sins deserved, and crediting us with his active obedience, his righteousness, as we put our faith in Christ. That is the grace which has appeared. This is done. It's finished. It is Certain, you can build your life on this truth. And that grace has appeared doing what he says, bringing salvation for all people. When we say the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, this isn't saying every single person who's ever been born has been saved. But this is saying God has broken down every conceivable way which humans have devised to divide themselves. Look around you right now, left and right. Actually do it. 
This is, the reason that you're here, by the way, is that sitting under the word of God is a corporate activity. Ministry in the church is not only from here to there. Ministry in the church, as we see, is omnidirectional. It's all kinds of people caring for all kinds of other people. If this was just some kind of data dump, we could send you a newsletter or make a YouTube video. You'd watch it on your own time. Sitting under God's word is a corporate activity. Look around you right now. Left, right, behind. I'll give you a minute. Everybody else is doing it. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. It doesn't matter if you're from a well-to-do family in Lagos, Nigeria, or from a village in Rukum in western Nepal. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a penthouse overlooking Central Park in New York City or in a village in the mountains of the Philippines. It doesn't matter. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. You, ECC, you're a fulfillment of this glorious gospel truth. God's grace has appeared. Bring salvation to all people. And it's doing something else in us. God's grace has appeared and it's training us to put on certain things. We need to be living certain ways because of this grace which has appeared and we need to be denying certain things. We're putting off ungodliness, worldly passions, and we're living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is a summary of what he's been saying in verses 1 to 10. This is because of the grace of God which has appeared. You can think about in Matthew 28, Jesus' commission to his disciples, his commission to the church now. What are we to do? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. He doesn't say, go and give some kind of bare gospel presentation and then leave and see what happens. He doesn't say, go and teach them the truth of the gospel. He says, go, make disciples by teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Paul, in his letters to the Romans in chapter 1 and in chapter 16, at the beginning and the end, he says that his aim is to bring about the obedience of faith. The faith comes first. The faith is the foundation. This gospel doctrine is the foundation upon which we build, but then this obedience, this godly living is the superstructure which the world can see, which brings glory to the Lord. So understand what is the gospel. It's already done. It's fully accomplished. It's finished. Jesus has come. He became a man like you and me, lived a perfect life, died in our place, credits us with his righteousness, takes our punishment when we trust in him. And we are to be, verse 13, waiting. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes, one eye on what's been done, one eye on the certain future which is coming. This waiting is not some kind of passive Feudal, oh, this thing's supposed to happen, I'm just going to sit down and play on my phone, look at Facebook, whatever, for, until this happens or doesn't happen. This is eager expectation. 
one of our sons had a birthday a couple weeks ago, and I think a little over two months before that, he said, how long until my birthday? And I said, buddy, it's a while. I think starting at day 60, we had a countdown. All right, 60 days to my birthday, 59 days to my birthday, 58, 57, all the way down. Waiting, he's eager, he's ready. I know my birthday's coming, and I, every single day, I'm talking about when's the birthday. More sure than your next birthday coming is this, that Jesus is coming again. Live like this is a certain, a sure hope. This isn't a hope like, ah, you know, I hope that happens. This is sure, more sure than your next birthday. Live waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The return of Christ ought always to be on the front of our minds, on the tips of our tongues. We're living our lives, we're thinking and speaking, knowing Jesus is coming again. I don't know when, but I know. This is sure. This is the foundation upon which I'm building. He is coming again. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us, to purchase us, to take us out of all unlawlessness, to pull us out of slavery to Satan and to sin and to death and to purify. Pay attention to this. He says to purify for whom? For himself. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we see Jesus has done this. Jesus will finish it. We're to be a people who are zealous, eager, excited for good works. But the gospel is not primarily, first and last, it's not about you and me. This is about the glory of God. In his amazing mercy, we have incalculable benefit because of what Jesus has done. But our lives are not for us. The gospel is not about what am I going to get. The gospel is about the glory of Jesus. This is for him, through him. Then he concludes again as he began. So verse 1, he says, as for you, Titus, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then, again, he's closing this section. It's like two bookends, holding all your books together on the shelf. Declare these things. Titus, I told you at the beginning, do this. Now I'm telling you again at the end. Declare these things. Exhort, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So just as... We saw last week, the pastor, the shepherd, has two voices, one for the sheep, one for the wolves. Paul urges Titus, commands Titus, encourage, exhort, care for the people, and be ready also to rebuke. There are going to be we see in chapter 1, we'll see next week in chapter 3, there are going to be people who oppose. You need to be ready to exhort those who need just encouragement and help, guidance. Be ready, and be ready also to rebuke when the situation, when, when the need arises. And do it with all authority. How can a pastor, how can any Christian speak 
whether it's to encourage or to rebuke, with all authority. Only when it is firmly grounded in the word of God. Paul says to the Galatians, even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a, a different gospel than that which you have heard, let him be accursed. The authority is not primarily in the messenger. The authority is in the message. And because of that, if Titus is grounded in firm doctrine, elders of ECC, pastors of ECC, if you are grounded in this firm, sound, rich gospel doctrine, saints at ECC, if you are grounded in this, if this is your foundation upon which you're building, you can encourage, you can rebuke, you can speak, you can help with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Over the last nine years, uh, we have worked by God's grace in India, uh, preaching the gospel there, caring for saints, discipling. We've seen many people come to faith. We've seen many people face great trials in coming to faith. And one of the great joys that we've had is seeing people over a period, sometimes it's a period of years, slower than we would want it to be. But as we see them grow in their understanding of the gospel and as we see them grow in godly living, it's an incredible joy. There's a man who I first met about six years ago, came to faith, was living in a village, working a labor job. One day a week he had off, drunk, fully drunk all day. I show up at nine in the morning for a Bible study, he's sleeping in the dirt. Now, six years later, he knows the word. He loves the word. He's living. He's turned away from service to idols. He's turned away from spending his life in a drunken stupor and is sound, always encouraging the saints. I would have liked for that to happen in a month or two. It was about four years, really, to see those things take root in his life. But it's been a joy to see these things happen. ECC, my hope and prayer is to see the gospel take root even more deeply in our life together and in each of your individual lives, to see this sound gospel doctrine work itself out in godly living. My hope and my prayer is that I would be able to speak and live in such a way that you would not even have a desire to disregard me. Let me pray for us and we'll finish. God, we thank you for this incredible word that you've given. God, we thank you for your mercy in saving people from all over the world and in bringing them together into one body here at ECC. God, we thank you for your grace which has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God, I ask that you would help us to love your word, help us to live lives that bring you glory, and Lord, we thank you for the privilege that each one whom you have called and saved now has a role to play in your glory among the nations here in Abu Dhabi and around the world. We thank you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.